Good morning once again. It's good to be back with you again this morning. And if I could ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34. That will be my main text or the core text. I'll also be making a reference to John, the Gospel of John chapter 17. But Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34 is our main text. Hear the word of God. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will not he, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, this morning as we look into your word, we pray that your spirit would move in our minds and our hearts, first to cause us to understand this word clearly, and Father, secondly, to receive it with a desire to put it into practice. We pray that your spirit would enable us to do that in our lives each day of our lives as we seek to glorify your name, you who are worthy of all of our worship and praise. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Most of us here today, if we're honest with ourselves, if we've thought about it very much, have at sometimes fallen into the trap of worry. I probably don't need to define what that is. I think we all have, we know it. And as someone once said, uh, if we can't define it, we know it when we see it. In this case, we know it when we feel it. Of course, Paul's letter to the Philippians exhorts us not to worry about anything. Rather, we are to let our requests be made known to God. He answers our prayers, and his Spirit gives us the peace that we need so that we don't worry. But besides ordinary worry, the kind that's talking about in, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, that I just read. Besides that, there's another kind that I have in mind today. This kind has to do with our desire to engage as Christians with our culture, to have an influence on it for Christ. And so today we're concerned with two related issues or two related concerns that I have that we as Christians can fall into. First, In what way and to what extent should we be engaged in the world? That's the first question. 
in our culture in the elements of it, such as politics, economics, social problems, uh, the issues of abortion, end-of-life issues, and so forth. Those issues beyond simply worshiping God in in the church and doing the things related to the gospel specifically in the church. Besides that, in what way are to be are we to be engaged in that culture? I think the answer to that is going to be pretty clear. But secondly, how does that question relate to the admonition not to worry? In other words, can we apply the text of Matthew chapter 6 and other texts about worry, not only to mundane issues like food or clothing or shelter, but also to the bigger issues that we as Christians are concerned with in our culture? And in what context, how do we understand what it means not to worry? Another way to approach this is to ask where my priorities lie. I think that's maybe the best place to start. And related to that, we might ask, do I have idols? Which might not be wrong in themselves, but might become wrong. So first, let's address the issue of cultural engagement. Um, This issue has been around for a long time in the culture uh, and in Christianity. It's been around for centuries, actually. In John, Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 14 through 19, Jesus speaks about the world, and we would call that our culture, our society around us. He states that his disciples are not of the world. So let's turn there to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, and look at that passage for a few moments. That's our foundational, and then our core passage will be going back to Matthew Chapter 6. So, John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, is praying for his disciples. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He begins in verse 14. The term world, what does it mean? The term world is in the context would seem to mean that set of worldviews or ideas of worldviews and their practices that are in opposition to the truth of God, outside the truth of God, outside the orthodox teaching of the word of God and God's will. In that case, the disciples then are different. They're to be set apart from that world in their thinking and in their actions, not of the world, in other words. After all, we're told I, that is Jesus, have given them your word. To have been given his word is the key to not being of the world. Pretty obviously, it does not mean they are no longer to live in this present material existing world called earth. That's not the case. But more than that, Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Look at verse, the verse once again. Uh, Verse uh, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So they are not to withdraw from the world. We're not to withdraw from the world at all. Rather, we are to pray, as Jesus prayed, that we would be kept from the evil one and thereby kept from being tainted by the ideas of the world. In verse 17, Jesus goes on to ask this question, to ask, sanctify, to say of his father, sanctify them in the truth. We have two important points here in verse 17. If you look at it with me, 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. First, to be in the world, but not of it, we must be sanctified. What does that mean? That continuous process of the Holy Spirit that conforms us to the image of Christ in our moral and ethical lives, but also our intellectual lives. Our whole lives, in other words. Sanctification is a whole life process for the whole of life, for all of life, from the time that you are justified as a believer to the time that you die and go to be with the Lord. An entire process for the whole being, the whole human being. Secondly, though, the foundation of our sanctification is in the truth, which he says at the end of the verse. And that means God's word. Thy word is truth. The criterion by which Christians evaluate what is allegedly good, right, true, beautiful, whatever term you want to use here, is the word of God. Ultimately, the word of God. We speak about the sufficiency of scripture. That's true. That's an important doctrine, the sufficiency of scripture. What do we mean by that? We mean that in some way, ultimately, whether directly or indirectly, the scripture is the criterion by which we judge all other things in the world, everything else. Without it, our engagement with the world and our lives in general would simply be on the world's terms and not God's. And God demands that we live for him and serve him on his terms, obviously. These verses certainly imply that we are to be active in our culture. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But how exactly and to what extent are we to be active in our culture? That's the question. And again, that question has been debated for centuries how we should do that. Let me just make mention of a book that you might find of interest on this subject. It's a historical book called uh, Christ and Culture by Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm sorry, H. Richard Niebuhr, not Reinhold, that's his brother. H. Richard Niebuhr, Christ and Culture. This book takes us through the various views that have been held through the centuries about how Christians should engage with their culture or not. On the one end, it says we shouldn't. And there have been people like that. Tertullian in the early church asked the famous question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Athens represented philosophy. Jerusalem represented the Bible and Christianity. The answer for Tertullian was nothing. Don't engage in the culture. Withdraw from the culture if you can. And we could point to examples throughout history of people and groups who have taken that view. We have all the intermediate views of how you can relate culture to Christianity in some way. We have the views that say, well, we can take the best of culture and bring that into Christianity. Or we can take the best of Christianity and bring that into the culture, in some way influence the culture. But finally, we have on the other end of the spectrum, the view that says our job as Christians is to transform culture. By the way, that's the view held by the reformers. Transform culture. I think scripture does support that view. But it doesn't do it explicitly. It does it implicitly. We have to go to other texts. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. What the Bible is good for? Everything, virtually. And it is. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You can look there yourselves about how that teaches us to engage in our world and not just be withdrawn from that world. Plus, we have verses that show Jesus or Paul or others in the Bible or even the Mosaic Law itself, which we read this morning, addressing issues not just related directly to salvation, 
but issues for the whole of life and all of culture. The Bible, God, does not shirk from that. He does not call us to shirk from that. Not at all. In other words, Christianity is a comprehensive worldview that speaks to all of life and thought, every single aspect of our life, including, of course, our salvation, but going beyond that to every issue in the world that we encounter, to every idea in the world that we encounter. If that's true, then that worldview should be a part of how we act and speak and think in the world as we live in it. And that clearly implies engagement in our world and everything. So what then is our goal? Our goal, by God's grace, is to see, number one, individuals' lives changed by faith in Jesus Christ. That's certainly the core of what we do as a church. But number two, those same lives we want to see advancing in the knowledge and the practice of God's word for his glory. So it doesn't end with being justified and resting on our laurels. It means growing as a Christian in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, as a result of that justification and that following sanctification process, a transformation of culture itself as we interact and engage in the culture around us and don't, by all means, withdraw from that culture. So this last goal can present the real problem for believers, I think. At least today, I'm talking about that issue. Here, our main text comes into the picture, I think. So let's go back now to the Gospel of Matthew and look more closely at it and see what it has to say for us today as Christians who desire to be engaged in our culture. As I see it, Christians can can encounter two kinds of problems when seeking to be a part of their culture without being of it or of the world. Two attitude problems, two dispositional problems, if you want to call them that. First, they can grow frustrated and discouraged in their efforts in the transformation area, in in seeking to transform our culture. Frustration, discouragement, which leads to worry. That's part of the worry issue. Secondly, the transformation effort itself becomes the sole focus, and that not only leads to problems of idolizing what we're trying to change, but also worry about not being able to fast enough. Impatience, worry, those kinds of things that we may encounter. So our text in the Gospel of Matthew has something to say to both of these issues. A little bit about, about the Matthew 6 and where it falls in context very quickly. It's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached this to show people who would follow him how they should actually live. Not just how they think, but how they live, both of those, and that they needed to show by their lives that they belonged to Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount very, very succinctly and very powerfully makes that point. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount is not, as some have said, a set of principles intended for the future kingdom when Christ returns. Some people have made it a parenthesis. They've gotten right up to chapter 5 and said, we cut this off up to chapter 7, and then we take it up again in chapter at the end of chapter 7, and that's for Christians today, but not the Sermon on the Mount, they say. 
That's obviously false. These principles are intended for the hearers then and for the hearers today. All of it. So generally, the scholars divide the sermon into several parts. The part we're concerned with, chapters 6 and 7, deal with various aspects of living this Christian life out in various ways. Things like prayer, giving to the needy, fasting, judging or evaluating, and etc. We're going to focus in on the idea of worry, the concept, the problem of worry here. So let's look at these verses and how they can be applied to our two situations, beginning with verse 24, not 25, but 24. The context is important here. No one could serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Interesting, this verse is about the difficulty of trying to have two ultimate masters, money and God, and serving them at the same time in the same way. It doesn't mean you can't do two things at once. That's not what this text is about. We can all do two things at once. That's not the problem. And we can all have two employers potentially at once. That's possible too. The issue is trying to serve both of them as ultimate masters at the same time in the same way. That's what it's all about here. There's obviously a conflict of interest by the very nature of the two things that he sets up here, money versus God. If you try to have money as your ultimate uh, master, you have trouble serving God. See what's going on here? The conflict. And that is bound to do two things. It makes it impossible to serve one of them as you should. That would be God. And it causes worry in the process of trying, which is a problem for each Christian. In this case, the two masters, or loyalties, if you want to call them that, God and money. The solution is simple. Remove money from the top. God must come first in priority. Money must come somewhere below that. Hopefully, fairly low in the list below that. Though we do need it in priority. But there are other situations where the loyalty problem crops up. And that leads to worry and distraction. And that is why verse 25 begins, Therefore, in light of what I've just said by my two examples of God and money, let's talk about the others. God, for example, versus food, clothing, or we could extend that to shelter and other things. That's why it does that. In the light of these issues, our ultimate loyalty, he says, should be different. And he begins in verse 25 by saying, Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In the same verse, we're told, don't be anxious about our life, what what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to put on. The main focus here is all of life. Those are examples that he gives that illustrate all of life. Food, drink, clothing are just examples. That means we can legitimately apply the passage even to the situation I had in mind about engaging in our culture. It applies to everything, as the Bible does. In verse 26, then, Jesus gives us the counterexample. You're worried about these things? Don't worry about these things, I tell you. But look, for example, at the counterexample in the world. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Interesting example. Birds don't worry, do they? Birds don't even think. Birds just do what God made them to do. They just be birds. They fly around, they make nests, they produce more birds, and so forth. God simply provides for their needs for living, even while they simply do what they're made to do. They don't worry. There's our counterexample. By contrast, are not we more valuable in his sight than birds? I would think so. In fact, the Bible says we're made a little lower than the angels, which would make us higher than the birds, considerably higher than the birds. Then verse 27 sets up another example. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? An interesting one. No matter how much we worry about this or that or the other thing or about life in general, it can't do anything to add any time to our lives at all. It's impossible. Now, it might take, take some time away. It's possible if we worry too much. Of course, we have other physical problems that develop out of that, which could be problematic. But it can't add any time to our lives at all by doing it. In fact, we can't change anything at all by doing that. Implied here is that God alone is sovereign. And no amount of our desire to take that sovereignty away to ourselves can cause anything by itself. It's impossible. Then verses 28 through 30, another example we have. Verses 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here we have this this third example. The comparison is even stronger here. Flowers don't think. They're not sentient at all. They simply grow. That's all they do. They do what God made them to do with nothing else. It's God who ultimately causes them to grow and to flourish. And yet we spend so much time and energy and money worrying about our clothing or anything else in life. And again, clothing and flowers are illustrations of the greater issue. The greater issue is our lives as a whole. Then we come to the summing up verses, 31, 32, and then 33 and 34. Jesus in verse 32 writes, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Hmm, Let's camp on that one for a second. Don't be anxious. Non-believers are obsessed with these things. But sometimes believers are too. And other things besides those. And it says your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If we know God at all, we know that everything everywhere, at all times, even to the smallest details, he knows already. He knows we need those things to live, to flourish. He's aware of that. Why are we exercising ourselves over that? And if we know God at all, we know of his love and care for his children that desires to provide those things for us. This is something we often forget in our lives when we get in the middle of our various situations, and we start worrying. We forget that God is sovereign, 
and we forget that God cares for us as his children. And the Bible reiterates that in numerous places. Now verses 33 and 34, the climax of this whole passage, I think. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is where we begin to make our application of the text. Jesus makes clear that our priority in life must be, one, to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, and two, I'm sorry, his kingdom, and two, to seek his righteousness. Two things we're to seek, his kingdom and his righteousness. And I believe they're different. They're separate issues here. What do the two words mean, and therefore what is it we should be seeking? The word kingdom, along with God's kingdom here, is a kind of code word, if you will, that stands for the whole realm over which God reigns. And what is the realm over which God reigns? Everything in the universe, and every human being in the universe, at all times, in all places. Uh, I decide here, and I love to make these little asides, about God himself. If you know the nature of God, you know that he's omnipresent. What does that mean? That means he's everywhere, at all times, in the same way. It's not just a part of him is over here, and a part of him is over there. All of him is everywhere, all the time. That makes it possible for him to actually care about us and make that care effective. Now, if that by itself doesn't stop worry, I'm not sure what would, but here... We're talking about one of the things we should seek first. The kingdom, the realm over which God reigns and has complete sovereignty. That's everything. So we are seeking to live in a way that shows that we are members of that kingdom. And that gets us back to transformation. In every area of our lives, we should seek to live as members of that kingdom of which we are members. And the Bible says that we've been transferred From the kingdom of Satan, darkness, to the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ. We are members of that kingdom. Now we must live as if we were members of that kingdom, which we are. In this context, let's go to righteousness now. The word righteousness, his righteousness, is again about our pursuit of what is right in God's eyes. Righteousness is what we do in life, how we live in life, how we think how we speak, how we act. How do we know that? We know that from God's word, obviously. And those are the two things we need to seek above all else. And that takes away the issue of worry as we do that and become, as it were, obsessed with those things instead of what's directly in front of us and what we think we need and have to get as fast as possible. And then finally, in verse 33, it adds, and all these things will be added to you. Emphatically, we're not to worry. We are to seek God's kingdom and his standard of right and good. And as we do these things first in priority, without obsessing about them, God will provide. Now notice, I am not saying, I do not mean that we do nothing in life. This is not a kind of um, situation where we sit back and wait for God to zap us in some way. No, we are active in our lives, serving God actively in our lives, in every respect, in every area of our lives. As we do that, as we do it God's way, we're not obsessing over the things we need, we're obsessing with serving God, so to speak, using the term very loosely. And so then God provides us with those things as we seek his kingdom and his righteousness. So we are to be active, yes, 
But we're not to be active with the wrong attitude as we're active in the world. God's will is the overarching standard that should guide how we engage with our world and every aspect of that. Now to the specific application. He says, finally, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For some, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The idea of tomorrow simply has the broad notion of whatever comes. Whatever's out there for tomorrow that you might be engaged in, that you might be concerned with, that you might be uh, an area you might be working in or thinking about or acting in, it's going to take care of itself as you do the right thing before God. But you're not to worry about it as you do it. You're to trust God to bring about the results, the outcomes that he desires. We want the world to understand and embrace the truth about God's word in every aspect of life. We want that. We want all that plus its implications that are drawn out from that. We want all of that. But we don't always see success. Sometimes it seems that we never see success. And so what happens? We fret. We grow impatient. We worry, as I've said before. We forget that God is the one who brings about the results as he wills in his time frame, not in ours. We should still move forward. But as we move forward, we move forward in the sense that we need to be, and I'm borrowing a phrase from Ronald Reagan, or or phrases about Ronald Reagan. He was called the happy warrior. That's in a sense what we need to be, the happy warriors. Moving forward with joy and confidence in God, moving forward as ones who would seek to take back the kingdom of this world, but doing so in God's will, not worrying. Others of us, of course, they have the opposite problem I mentioned before. We have simply become so obsessed with cultural transformation that we forget other aspects of the gospel. We forget, for example, that the gospel is first and foremost about seeing God bring people to himself. We've forgotten about that. We can't do that. We then idolize our endeavor, which naturally leads to worry since we are sure to be disappointed sometime along the way. And by God's grace, that can change our disposition. And only by God's grace can that change. But that's not to say that we should cease our efforts. Again, I keep reiterating this for a reason. Because there are two extremes we go to. Become obsessed thinking we have to do this when we can't. Only God can do this. On the other hand, we become inactive completely. And we sit over here and wait for something to happen, which is the other thing God says we shouldn't do. Neither one is true. Both are extremes. We choose the balance that's brought about in God's word here. Move forward in confidence in God. Do God's will everywhere that we're faced with everything in the world and trust in him to provide. Trust in him to bring about the outcomes. We move forward in confidence in God's strength. We resolve to do the very best we can, but we understand the outcome belongs to God and God alone. Now, what areas were those involved? Just real quickly. I've already alluded to it, but let me just say it again. Everything. It's that simple. Whether it's your family life, church life, those are the easy ones for most of us. Growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in our, in our personal morality and ethics, those are always easy for us. But what about the world out there? What about facing that world? 
And not just, although this is crucial, not just interacting with people in such a way that we can show them the gospel and tell them the gospel, proclaim it. We should be doing that, yes. But it goes even beyond that to the way the world thinks about everything. And it goes beyond that to the way the world acts, practices regarding what it thinks about everything in the world. This takes us into all sorts of areas of life, whether it's education or economics or politics or law or sociology or anthropology or sciences or engineering, wherever it takes us. Whatever we do as a vocation, that's where God will have us be engaged. And he doesn't just mean the, the narrow part about proclaiming the gospel to those people. That's crucial, yes, absolutely foundational and crucial, but not the only thing. Everything in life belongs to God. Every square inch belongs to him, as Abraham Kuyper, I paraphrased him, said. So we need to keep that in mind as we go into the world. But at the same time, we need to keep in mind that God calls us not to worry about what happens. That's his business, not ours. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly, confessing that we often have worried about things we should not have worried about, continuing to worry about those things, maybe even idolizing certain things that we shouldn't, in the hopes, thinking that we may change them, but really uh, really just obsessing. Father, I pray that we wouldn't worry about our, our lives in general, the mundane things or the, important, the more important things in life. Father, we, I pray that we would go to you and seek your grace. And Father, we know that you promised to give us your grace to enable us not to worry, but to serve you actively and yet humbly and calmly. And Father, we pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.